How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. And you? Um, I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm good in Hong Kong right now. Um, I thought of a question. What is the Superman syndrome that you talk about in the book and how do you get past it? Yeah, the, the Superman problem, right, is the idea is, you know, if for a magician, this, this idea for a magician that, you know, if you had the powers that you're pretending to have, if you, if you were Superman, you could fly, you were bulletproof, all those things, right? Would you, would you be on a stage proving that you could fly and flying through hoops or, or would you be out there saving people, right? <laughs> right. If you save people and you're Superman, then everybody knows that you can fly and you can do those things, right? They may, they may even think that you can do things that you can't do, but they, they, know, they know you by your work, right? Whereas if you see the real Superman flying through a hoop on the stage, you're going to be like, how, how's he doing that, right? Like, uh, I bet there's wires. I bet there's, I saw David Copperfield do the same thing, right? Like this is this whole process like once it becomes about the fact that you can do the thing it's it's instantly weakened and and the reason that you're doing it is so clearly just to show that you can and that uh that the idea of getting out of it is to is to try and do something communicate something right if you're using performance art magic mentalism you know whatever then communicate something with it do something and and then everybody knows that you can do the thing that you're trying to show off in the first place so what do you mean by that is the, in addition to the effect being demonstrated having a point of view and communicating that in your work so i mean using the effect to some end right so that so that the purpose of the effect isn't just to show that the effect is possible right that 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 the effect is is incidental to something else happening we use this bit of conjuring this bit of magic to accomplish something to get something done if so if if i said to you look i have a i have a i have an invisible hammer right i could uh I could maybe try and get you to touch it and feel the hammer or to smell it and maybe smell that you know that it's a hammer or hear it in some way. But if I take my invisible hammer and I drive a nail into a piece of wood, then now, now I've done something, right? Now I've used this thing and it doesn't matter whether it was an imaginary hammer or the idea of a hammer or a real invisible hammer, right? It, it drives nails into wood, so it's real. It's, it's doing something. Right? If you've seen, uh, I think you've seen Pashada, Mike Pashada, right? Um, I have, I have actually not. Uh, he, did, he does a beautiful trick with an egg, right? Okay. Uh, and it, he, he talks about in, in, in the trick, uh, you know, uh, um, a faith healer essentially using an egg to draw a demon out of a boy, right? And he cracks the egg open. And on the inside, you see hair and dirt, right? The inside of the egg is all messed up. And, uh, and like an anthropologist is watching this and says, uh, look, he, didn't you guys see he switched the egg, right? 
you switch mm-hmm. thing. He tells the people and, and the people say, yeah, but how do you get the demon out of the boy? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's, that's the thing. Use, use the trick to get the demon out of the boy. And then, and then you've, you've done it for some purpose. Right. And like that, that of course sounds like an extreme example, but you can, there, there are magic effects that you can do that the, the purpose of it is to, is to, is to demonstrate something about yourself or something that you learned. There are magic effects that are, you know, will hopefully cure phobias or uh, will instill confidence or will communicate and, and kind of give power, empower someone to do something. Right. If we do, if we do that, then, then we've done a thing, right? Yeah. It's it's not about whether or not more meaningful. It it is meaningful, right? Because it's the meaning isn't look what I can do. It's not, it's possible to do this magic effect. It's look what this magic effect can do, right? (laughs) Look, look what it can, this effect that it can have on you and your life, or look at what effect it had on me and my life. Um, right. Yeah. If it's used to communicate, to, to symbolically alter the world in some way to do real magic, right. Instead of just to show off that you can't see that I've got my finger inside a deck of cards, right. Or whatever. Your, your, your themes seem to be under the umbrella of healing and fears and dreams from what I understand. Right. Do you think there uh, are there are kind of other? Uh, do you see other kind of approaches with these these ways of communicating magic? And what are those? Well, I'm, I imagine there are a lot of them, and that it would be a little bit different for everyone who wants to use magic to communicate in some way, right? That each each person would would bring themselves to it. And by doing so, those themes would change and the ideas that you're communicating, the way that you're dealing with those ideas would would be different. Um, yeah, I mean, the there, there are probably going to be some similarities just because of the way that, that those interactions happen, you know. Um, but I see that, like that, that healing aspect, I see that in Darren Brown's work and I see that in mm-hmm. Derek Delgadio's work. Um, you know, like I, the, these themes, I think a lot of people stumble onto that idea that's like, okay, so I can do these things and they can have power, powerful effects on people's lives what kind of effect do I want to have on people's lives, right? I want to make their life better. I want to make them better for having met me or seen me or, you know, if possible, then then make it strong and good. Right. So, but, okay, one of the things that comes to mind is that when an audience or, or like an average person go to, see a magician or they understand the notion of a magic show they think of very different things than what you're talking about here so do you notice a clash in that or do you play with that clash how do you approach that so for me um you know i i don't 
I, I, I don't, I'm nowhere near well known, right? In, in the sense that, that Darren Brown or, or Delgadio would be known, right? So they, they get to control a bit of that pre-framing of what's going on, right? You, you don't go see Darren Brown because you want to see a mentalism show. I would, I would show. argue that even Delgadio, you would have to, he, he would have to set the frame for himself that the context isn't right and he, apparent. He, he does definitely sometimes because, uh, you know, I think when, when people try to describe what that show is, they end up still referencing magic show in there somewhere, but they're usually saying something like, well, it's not just a magic show or it's not right. Right. Like that will come up because they feel like they should mention it because it's a, it's kind of a part of it, but they know that that's not a good label for it. Um, right. Whereas I often, cause if I'm performing at like a variety show or at the magic castle, even, even better. Right. I show up at the magic castle and right. We'll have their expectations of what the show is going to be. Um, and they always ask for an, for an introduction. I just tell them to say whatever they want because it kind of doesn't matter. Like you, I don't think you have a good label, like a good cultural, well-fitting label that everyone would know that is what I'm going to do for people. You know, um, and so I let them say whatever they want because I'm going to either come out and throw everything they set out the window, or people will try and decide for themselves whether or not that fits, but probably not. Like by, by the end of a week of shows at the castle, I was just being introduced as a physicist. No, right? they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was like in, in part, they were getting the best reaction from the crowd. Like that was definitely the thing that they thought was, cause I'm, you know, I'm right behind the curtain. So I get to hear them react to the intro. Yeah. They would say I'm from Dallas. They would say I'm a physicist and everyone was, Ooh, Right. So the, the MCs kind of catch on to that. And, uh, and that was the only, like, they didn't call me a mentalist or a magician or anything. They just kept calling me a physicist because they were getting that. And then everybody's going, what does that mean? What's he going to, you know, what's this person going to come do? Uh, whereas if, if I get here in Dallas, if I get introduced as a magician, then what they see is something that kind of doesn't, fit with magic but references it you know i'm not pulling a rabbit right. out of a hat but but they get that there's some correlation there um yeah i'm i'm okay with any of those labels because i think they're all clearly not exact for me uh and i right. i get to very quickly reframe the room and and you know force them to see whatever the weird thing is that i do that that doesn't have a name. What what are your thoughts on the label of the mentalist? I was like Enrique Enriquez says that a, that a mentalist is a magician who pretends to be a psychic. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I think that's that's a really good label and is is probably why I I, I get that a lot of the things that I do kind of fit into that genre of, of magic, you know, like there, there's a lot of things that I'm doing with thoughts or feelings, uh, but I've never really considered myself a mentalist. Um, I guess because I, I wasn't ever really trying to 
prove that I could read minds or something like that, right? Like, I definitely was interested in genuine psychology and, and trying to, you know, use verbal and nonverbal communication to, to get the responses that I wanted to get out of people and to, you know, I'm, I'm a student of hypnosis and, and uh, studying language patterns and all that fun stuff. Um, and trying to apply that kind of stuff to the, to the things that I was performing. Um, but most of the time, the people that I, and there, there are definitely exceptions to this, but a lot of the mentalists that I saw early on were, you know, essentially there was a lot of writing down a word. And then I tell you what the word was that you wrote down and turn a, um, a clipboard around or something. And I didn't do anything like that. Right. Um, yeah, I yeah and if it's no and very often if it's well millets. done, yeah. yeah, if it's well done, the audience believe that they have some kind of power that they, pre they pretend to have, and that is the end of that interaction, right? Right, and and so when I do have somebody write a word down, most of the time I make a point of it being open and that it's something that I can see or that it's something for me to read later or you know something like that that. That again, there's some reason that it's happening, or that really they're writing it down to to generate this physical artifact of a of a thought. That's that's not me trying to guess the thought. It's the thought is having some effect on them. Right? Yeah, and a lot you know, of that, actually a lot of your work from me having read your book, uh, your books actually, um, they're almost they almost don't require deception in some way. Some, at least some of the things I've read. Yeah. And what's your, what's your take on that? And do you find that sometimes there's a mismatch once you add in the deception? So one of my kind of key criteria for, for things that I'm interested in performing is, is that I need to be able to remove the element of conjuring, right? Remove, if possible, just remove any element of deception and to have the thing still be worth doing, right? That the conversation is still worth having, the thing that we're talking about is still interesting and that we can do the whole thing without this one little piece. And because, as, as I said before, because I'm trying to use the conjuring effect to some end to get something else done, to me, the the conjuring effect is more like a like punctuation, right? It's not message; it's just an exclamation point that I might throw in. Um, and if if I felt like in the situation it would detract from from the scenario to to use the conjuring method or to have that little sacred deception in there. And I absolutely wouldn't do it. And there, there are a bunch of the routines that uh, that are in the book that I've I've done many times without without the uh, what what the magicians would call the effect, right? Right. And all that I get was what I would call the effect, right? <laughs> the 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 thing we're trying to really get done using the other thing. Yeah, because I that made me think of that effect that you have. I think, I don't remember the name of it, but it was about the childhood dream. And what, what was, what do you call yeah. that one? Uh, that's called dream catcher. 
Dreamcatcher. Yeah. So in that specific scenario, essentially a spectator or the part participant thinks of a childhood memory and you basically help them connect dots and realize how they are actually in some way fulfilling that dream. Am I kind of catching the essence of it? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the idea is so, to ask them what they wanted to be when they grew up and then show them that they already became that, and that they've been that their whole life. Right, so so I feel like that was such an a good example of it not requiring any deception or mind reading in the process to a point where I feel I would imagine the mind reading process can remove them from that interactive, like that point of interaction, of course it's context-based, but is that mm -hmm. one of the examples where you would often remove that mind reading bit? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I've, I've done that routine many, many times without, without the little punctuation mark there. So the, the bigger the crowd is that I might be doing that for, the more likely I would be to have that extra bit of punctuation. And when, when, you're, when you're in front of a bigger crowd, then, then you have this other responsibility, this other thing to make sure is happening, which is this, what I would call the theatrical structure that, that, we, that we get a, a beginning, a middle and an end, right? That it builds to some climax and that everyone knows when it's over. And, and having this, if you need it, this, this one little extra thing to, to help that moment happen, uh, then it can be very useful in, in an instance like that. But one-on-one, um, -on -one, it's definitely, usually it's not, it's not necessary, um, but it doesn't hurt to have it, right? It can help make the experience more powerful. Um, and, and really, the only thing that changes is, is a couple of sentences in, in the grand scheme of thing of, of the grand scheme of things, what, what would have otherwise just everyone would have known that that's there. And in the other instance, you'd be hinting at it, right. Rather than usually just blurting out what it is or pretending right. to pluck the word from their mind. Like it's not about that at all. It's about what you see in them and seeing who they are, who they were, in who they are now yeah right all that for a dollar right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bargain man <laughs> no that's the the there's a dollar involved in the structure of it that the dollar stays in even if uh even if i'm not gonna secretly get the information a little bit early it's right? just a whole interaction that's just part of the game that's right yeah um, you mentioned Enrique before. I wanted to ask you about his work and his influence on you. So what, what's kind of the major difference in terms of your work before Enrique versus after Enrique? Hmm. So I... I was definitely already kind of on on the path that that I'm on, but uh, I was hugely influenced by Enrique. Um, 
I mean, a, a lot of the things that where a lot of the aspects that, that he had a lot of influence in what I do are really things that happen outside of performance or more kind of general outlook, you know, philosophical questions, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, it's th this whole idea of, you know, his, the main purpose of what he's doing is to live a, a beautiful life. Right. And that it's not, it's not about trying to get some particular accomplishment or, or some accolade or, you know, it's, it's about seeking out the, the beauty in life. And uh, I think, I think that's wonderful, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine what my life would be like if I hadn't encountered uh, Enrique and his work. Um, yeah. But, but like the the routines we're talking about, like that stuff that I had written before, right? Like this, this is I was definitely on that path, uh, which is maybe which why is I probably, connected so much with right. what he's doing. You know, it's like this is this is someone who who gets it and and also gets it in in ways that I hadn't yet. Uh, were you were you into the tarot before Enrique? Oh yeah, yeah. I've I've been into the tarot for a long time, um, but had just started really seriously getting into the tarot maybe a year before uh, uh, I found his work, because um, Yadorovsky's work I found first, and then mm -hmm. uh, kind of incidentally, uh, Jared and I were talking to our friend Dan Strange. And, uh, and, and Enrique's name came up and he kind of hipped us to, to what, he, what he was doing. Um, and of course, like a couple of years after that, we figured out that we were already familiar with some of Enrique's work because it had popped up in other things that we had read and things that we knew. We just didn't remember his name because who remembers who wrote the introduction to, you know, this <laughs> <laughs> obscure Jerome Finley book or that's right or yeah. all the people I, I that show it, up it was in Jerome, the Jerome Finley books book. yeah that's right yeah <laughs> or this like I remember file. the routines from in there <laughs> yeah right yeah like uh we found out years later that he was already in our lives you know before we knew who he was or anything about him um so yeah no it's um just watching and learning from him has been has been uh, really important to me i think yeah that's beautiful i mean one thing i've noticed the difference kind of between enrique's thinking on the tarot versus yedorovsky's it feels like enrique is a lot more or i rather say a lot less insistent on on some ideas, he just seems to be a lot more free flow when it comes to how we find meaning within the tarot. Like, what? Mm. Like, do you do you find that the two kind of school of thoughts they contradict each other, or do they do they really complement each other? So, in in Yadorovsky's book, Way of Tarot, there right. there are a bunch of different ideas about the tarot and different ways of seeing them. And kind of this idea of it 
existing simultaneously in all these different ways is there in Yadorovsky. But when you watch him read the cards, he's kind of set in his ways and he thinks he's seeing what he sees. And he sees, I mean, he sees stuff in there that I don't see when I look at the cards, you know, like sometimes. Uh, I think every time the hermit comes up, he says, listen to Yadorovsky, right? Like, like, like it's always a picture of him. Uh, I think it's the hermit one that is. But, is that uh, his favorite card? I think he, I think he, I think he likes them all. He loves all of the cards, right? Right. But um, you, you mentioned to me your favorite card was the hermit. Is that correct? Is that still true? I mean, I love them all, but I, I love the hermit. I love the moon, the moon. That's that's the one with my name on it in our deck. I don't I don't know if you realize mm -hmm. that, but you know, um, yeah, that's that's maybe my my new favorite, right? The the light from from the hermit's lamp is, you know, expanded into the moon for me. I guess. Oh, that's beautiful. I got to tell Marina that she just finished her her print her series of print of the moon that she painted. It took her months, but um, it's finally coming out soon. So. That's, I think you might like that. Fantastic. Um, what, 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 what do you feel are the biggest misconceptions people have when it comes to the tarot? So, I don't, people have different conceptions. I, I, I'm not too concerned with with one concept being right or or another one being wrong. You know, there's there's what I've found to be useful for me and what I find to maybe not be as useful for me. But that that's not to say that it's, you know, the same situation for someone else. Um, but I mean, there, there are a lot of strange ideas about the history of the cards that, that seems to not be right. You know, like we, we know where cards come from. You know, with, what, when people, what's, the, what's the actual... What was the actual story there? So it, it's very little surprise that playing cards come from the same place that paper comes from originally, which is China. And, you know, you get paper mm -hmm. first, then you have the idea of making little pieces of paper. It, it happens pretty quickly. Uh, the, uh, the oldest known cards that, at least that they know about, the only suit, I guess, is coins. So there's some speculation that there was some game being played with having different numbers of coins and having one number beat another number, right? But then probably somebody grabs all the coins and runs away. So some genius is like, let's just have the picture of the coins. So yeah, the, nobody's the bankers. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, and then and then they develop into different suits and then they travel, you know with trade into uh, into Egypt, they become the Mamluk cards. Uh, and then those cards basically have the four suits and the court cards, the very, very similar structure to what we end up with for regular playing cards. Those hit Europe. And in Europe, someone has the idea to, to add another suit, right? So if they were gonna play hearts or spades or you know other trick-taking games like that, they decide now we don't have to argue over what what suit beats what because this is the trump suit right look how fancy they are they just count all the way up to 21 they've got these fancy illustrations and uh and there you go and then that's the, the game of taraki born in italy mm. uh, 
Yeah, and so that's in the 14, 1500s. Um, and then the cards finally get mass produced in, in France in the 1600s. 1650 is the oldest deck that we know of, at least the Noble. Uh, the, of the, the mass produced cards. That's kind of, they become the tarot when they start to get standardized. And so um, when did it become a tool of divination, you think? So the, um, there's a guy named Court de Javelin in the, um, this, is that in the 1800s? I, I don't remember the dates here, but uh, he's the first one to speculate that the cards came from, you know, ancient Egyptians or, uh, you know, deep, deep history somewhere. Um, and then Atea writes a, a book about using the, the tarot for fortune telling, uh, but they were still not the, uh, they were still not like the, the culturally recognized oracle in, you know, in Europe and America. Uh, in the later 1800s, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, um, A.E. Waite uh, hires Pamela Coleman Smith to illustrate a set of cards. She bases those illustrations on the Marseille deck and makes some changes so that it fits their occult ideas a little bit better. Uh, and then that's the, the writer Waite Smith tarot was born. That's right. But even it, even it doesn't become, you know, the the kind of standard cultural oracle. It's it's starting to be recognized at that point, but the point where it really becomes, you know, famously what you use to to read fortunes is in the 1970s. Really? <laughs> That's the yeah, yeah, the the new age movement in the in the 70s is what makes that Rider Waite Smith deck show up everywhere and start to be available in bookstores and and for everybody to really know what it is, you know, before that it, it comes up, but it's uh, like, you know, like Nightmare Alley references a, a tarot card for each, for each chapter, but, uh, but tarot cards would have been rarer then. It, it still would have been like, if you wanted to do cardomancy with, with a regular deck of playing cards now, you have to explain to someone that that's what these are for, right? You can tell fortunes with these, just like it would tarot, have been. Right? It would have been the same context, right? It's like these are these are fortune telling cards, and then you'd you'd be able to do it. But now, if somebody sees that I have a deck of tarot cards, they know that I'm a lunatic, right. or they know that I'm a fortune teller, <laughs> or they know that right, or they know that they want a reading, right? They, they, you're not they you're not here to play a game. Recognize it. <laughs> Right, right. Which is, of course, what they are really for originally. Yeah. And weight, the weight, so the weight deck, what was the, was the intention, just to clarify, was the intention to create a deck just for fortune telling? So the purpose there was, so the, the members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn would, uh, you know, kind of illustrate their own decks and they had their ideas about, you know, what should be on the cards, what what features were hidden or what features should be on there. So the idea was to get a deck of, of tarot that had all these features that they thought were missing from, from the other decks, you know. Um, yeah. So it was and, like and a, to, an attempt to, to improve things, it, right? Which... To, so I'm sure that they thought that they were uncovering these mysteries that were, you know, hidden by time, 
you know, thinking these things were supposedly in the cards before and then getting them added back in, saying this is what this is trying to illustrate and fixing it, you know. Um, yeah, Yedorovsky you know, calls that deck to be clumsy. What What do you think? Do you agree? <laughs> uh, I I know what he means, I think, but uh, it's, if if... If someone's interested in reading the, the cards, I think the best deck to use is, is whichever one they connect with, you know, like it, whether or not a tool is the right tool for me doesn't mean that it's not the right tool for, for you or for someone else. You know, if you connect with it, that's great. If you don't, that's also great. Um, just like the tarot itself, you know, if, if somebody wants a reading, that's fine by me. If they don't, that's fine too. You know, You're a lot maybe, more maybe liberal. We'll than Yedorovsky. Oh yeah, probably. <laughs> he's I know he's very he's very set in his ways, but uh he's been doing it that way for a long time and has had you know a lot of success. That's uh many years. Yeah. So um so if you could only keep two books in your collection, one being a magic book, the other one being non-magic, what would they be in why? Mm. That's that's going to be a tricky one. Um, now I'm trying to think if I had to pick one conjuring book. I don't like. I don't tend to just really reread conjuring books that often. There, there, there's some that I've read many times, but. I don't think yeah, any which, of those would what, just be my my desert island book, you know. Um, I I hmm. I I guess maybe for the for the conjuring book, I might just go with the forty books because they'd keep me busy, you know. Like they <laughs> were long. There's there's always the going to be life. stuff. <laughs> yeah, for for a little while, they they'd keep me busy. Um, so there's always bound to be some touch that I. That I hadn't picked up yet. Uh, oh, for sure. For non-magic books or more magic book than than that, even probably. Uh, I mean, it's see that that one's way tougher for the opposite reason. It's a much larger so collection. Many that I'm like, it's a larger collection, but it's also just books that I'm more connected with. I mean, I guess I would, I, I would go with the the Tao Te Ching, like, yeah, we'll we'll keep Lao Tzu. In in Chinese I've or in read English? That. Uh, I mean, if I could get both, you know, I'm, you get a, you uh, I'm, get a you get a translation version. Yeah, did I tell you I'm I'm copying it by hand now in Chinese? So, um, dude, that's amazing. That's, that's that's what I do over coffee in the morning. That's like amazing. Chapter, chapter 51 right now. Yeah. Are you on chapter 51? Mm -hmm. No. So there are 5,000 my... characters. I've never counted, but is that, is, well, you, you haven't got there yet. Uh, it could be that many. I'm, I'm not sure. It's, 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 it's a substantial number of characters. Yeah. The Chinese. Is, so I've, I've I've done this this practice of copying books before, kind of retyping books typically, and it's always something different. You know, uh, this is this is the first 
No, it's not the first because I because I've copied the Heart Sutra a few times in in Chinese and in English by hand. <laughs> Incredible. But, but I mean, the Heart Sutra you can copy that in an afternoon. You know, like that's 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 pretty short. You know, um, but this one is is taking a while. But it's like part of me is like this. Well, this will be like my handwriting practice, and it'll it'll teach me the characters, right? And it's not quite that. It's not really like that because. I'm not, it's not like I'm copying the same character over and over again. There's no. some that show up a lot. Now. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just like, really, it's this kind, it always turns into this more meditative practice where like what I have to do is just focus on, on this one stroke. Right. right. If I try to write the whole character at once, then it comes out looking like garbage. Right. But if I just, if, if there's just the one stroke, if that's all I have to do, then, then I can do it. Right. Then it, then it comes out looking okay. That's incredible, yeah. man. And you must get, yeah. What, I wonder what kind of experience you'd get from, I mean, when I, if I were to do that, I can't help, but to understand what that character means. Right. But yeah, you must have had a, like in the, in the process of that, you must have a very different experience. So, I mean, because I've, I've retyped other books, it's, it, it is equally the same kind of dissociated meditative practice. Like I'm not reading the book when I type it. I've, I've typed the Tao Te Ching. I've done that. I've typed uh, 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 as well. Like, mm. but you're not, it's not like reading it. It's, it's like not reading it. Like you're, you're hitting some flow state where, where the real thought that you're thinking is like, how do my fingers know how to spell the words? Right. Like, like, like you're just there in this zone where, where it's just happening, you know, where you're, you're seeing the thing, your hands are typing what they're typing and, and you're not thinking about how to spell words or where the keys are or how, you know, where, where the keyboard is. Right. You, it's just, it's just happening on its own. Uh, and I, I can only imagine that that's what it would be for you is that like, there, there are characters in there that I know, like, that's the worst part about doing it with, with the Tao Te Ching right now. It's like, <laughs> I know just enough to not know what is going on, um, but, but occasionally I'll hit a passage where I know it, I know it in English. And because I know it in English, I'm like, that's what I'm on now. Right. Yeah. Like, wow. Oh. The, yeah, the five colors blind the eye. Yeah, you, I, I see that coming. I'm like, yes, yeah, I know, I know where I'm at in the book. That's incredible. See, you know, thirty each spokes time, on a yeah, wheel. Each time you do but, this, but like, it's the hole in the yeah. center that makes it useful, right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and and I, yeah, and so it's it's kind of like a meditative practice for you. Do you have any other meditative practices? Do you practice kind of like? mindfulness or vipassana meditation or that kind of work or is that more kind of just allowing mindfulness to bleed into your everyday life so i have my own kind of approaches to those things i guess you know uh but yeah no for sure um bits and pieces from all over uh, but you know sometimes i i sit and forget you know Right. Yeah. And when you, what, oh, sorry, what was the name of the 
the gray book that you wrote? Uh, Post-digitation. That one. Yeah. What what was the writing process of that? Because that was that's a very unconventional book. So it, it was it was right after I finished that book that I started doing this um, this kind of copying things this 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 uncreative writing practice. It's, Kenneth Goldsmith, the poet, has a a book called Uncreative Writing that that talks a lot about copying other other things, right? That's what a lot of his poetry is. Um, but when I was writing post-digitation, it, it was mostly automatic writing, right? So I would just kind of sit down and start typing. Like I don't have a, didn't have a plan to, to write anything out. It was just, it was just, this was the time when I would sit down, I would sit down and open up a word file and just type and type and type and type until I stopped. And then I'd walk away from it or, you know, come back the next day and, and start a new file and, and, and type that out. So it was, it was very much this kind of automatic process, right? This also a very meditative kind of a thing. There were it was pretty a few chapters. Right. Right. Yeah. This I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, these things that happen of their own accord, right? Wu Wei, right? This, mm-hmm. what, what happens, what, what absence does, right? But not being there makes, makes it happen on its own, right? Um, yeah, is to, is to just do it in this effortless kind of a way. And that's what these other practices are like as well, where it's like, this is just, this is just a thing that happens in my house at this time, right? This is, Sometimes the Tao Te Ching shows up on a piece of paper. Right? Sometimes that book is written. The the book that I'm one of the books that I'm working on. I'm not sure if I'm still working on it or if it's already done. I haven't added a lot onto it recently, but the idea was for it to already even be more automatic, right? To to realize that I was already writing a book, and that all I had to do was copy and paste it into into the right files, right? So from emails and, and DMs on social media and stuff where people would ask me a question, I would type. Oh, that's so beautiful. Right? <laughs> and then it, it's like, why? I, I, I was sitting around wondering, well, what's the, am I going to write another book? And if so, what's it going to be like? And then I realized I'd already written most of it or maybe all of it, you know? Uh, yeah, probably. So in, in, in some way, I mean, in your attempt to not try to be creative, you actually produced a very, well, what I consider to be a very creative um, book, a, a piece of work. Um, what, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on this? What would you say to someone who say, I, I'd like to be more creative? I mean, really i think what they what they want is to do more right? like if you if you're doing things then things get created i guess um you know um so i i don't know that there's you know that there's some way to snap your fingers and then and be this other kind of person because i don't think you're the first kind of person in the first place right you're you're whatever it is that you are 
and you can be that and write a book or you can be that and make a work of art you know all you have to do is is get interested you know start start doing things and and then things happen you know that's that's the real secret it's like it's like the people seem to think that motivation is a thing right that that I'm going to sit around on the couch and then I'm going to get motivated. And then once I'm motivated, then I'll get up off the couch. But you, you're just adding an extra step in there that never comes, right? The, the step is to get off of the couch, right? Like there, there's no motivation. There's just motion. So. Yeah, that's you, weird. You wanna, yeah. <laughs> never thought yeah, about it. Like like that. You, yeah. You don't need this, this imaginary step in the middle, right? It's like. How, how will I get more confident? It's like, you're not going to get more confident. You can go out and do things. And then people will say, look at how confident that person is. Even if you're up there going, wow, I'm terrified. Right? Yeah, I feel like confidence, <laughs> what, they're really, what they're really referring to is a level of comfort, isn't it? Like a level of comfort in a certain environment. But yeah, confidence in itself is not like a fuel that allows you to do things or do things better. Mm -hmm. And and to get to that level of comfort, you've just got to go out there and do the thing, right? Like that's like that, that also comes from doing from action and not from waiting to be comfortable and then do the thing, right? You've the comfort comes with, with time or with attention and the attention happens in the doing. Right? Do you, do you intentionally stretch your comfort zone? How do you do that for your personal journey? Um, I don't. I don't know. A comfort zone. That's. I, I wouldn't say that I stretch my my comfort zone, but I'm I'm always finding new opportunities to do more. You know, trying to fit realized that there were things that I wasn't getting done and then that there are all these times when I wasn't doing anything. So I'm like, I, I was never, I would never have described myself as a, as a morning person, but now I have this morning ritual that has expanded into, you know, doing a lot, a lot, what seems like a lot of stuff, you know, like I, I, I get my workout done in the morning and then I do my Spanish lessons and then I solve some chess puzzles. And then I read a few pages on a stack of books that I'm, that I'm reading. Right. And then I go get ready and have my coffee and copy the Tao Te Ching. Right. Like, like all that stuff is done before 9am. Right. Like that's just what I do when I wake up, you know? Yeah. That's great. Um, right. Like it's, in and I just do it by not by not doing it by not making a thing of it. That's just first thing, first this happens, then that happens, then that happens, and the next thing you know, you know, all this stuff has happened. Yeah, mm. and then and then there's a book, or there's a new show, or right? Whatever, right? You you might win a chess tournament or whatever, but it's led by your kind of curiosity and. And just the natural yeah, by, flow of things, right? By engaging, by by 
seeing how interesting everything is, you know. Do you get it's all interesting? Do you get stifled by imposter syndromes or negative thoughts? Um sometimes yeah i mean sometimes there's these like moments of doubt or whatever and then and then i remember like an imposter to what like i'm i'm nobody i'm just i'm just you know i'm just this guy you know <laughs> like there, there's no you the, the imposter syndrome is is the imposter right that's the pretending that that you're something special and you're going maybe i'm not really special it's like look you're you're, you're another human being. We're all the same. Nobody's, right. nobody's that fancy, you know? Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Once you drop it, that, it everything just that flows. Long. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. um, it's, it's when it's, when it's not about trying to show that I'm this thing that I might be an imposter for, and it's just about living a beautiful life. Right. And then, then, uh, then all the weight is taken off, right? It's play. It's uh, it's easy again. Yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful message to end on. Um, I know the course just started already, but can you, I guess like in the, just in case there's a future one, can you tell us a little bit about the Magic Tarot course? Yeah, so uh, Jared Koff, uh, my close friend and Kind of business partner uh we um we're teaching a course right now on the tarot it's called the magic of tarot uh we're about one we're one week into the five-week course so there's still time if somebody wanted to kind of hop into it but uh we do occasionally you know teach different courses on i've, I've taught a course on framing and other kind of reading systems and occasionally magic lectures and of course our books and stuff through dark arts press so uh, but yeah, the current the current course is kind of about all things tarot, the history, reading the cards, different ways to interact with the cards, and how to kind of speak the language of the cards and, and see them out in the world, see yourself in the cards. Yeah, I mean, you and Jared were definitely the people who got me into the tarot in the first place. So I encourage anyone with an interest or curiosity with the tarot, about the tarot too join the magic of tarot or to read some of your books or to get a deck from the dark card press so um yeah thanks for doing this man it's been a fun of call of course yeah it's, it's always great talking to you all right um till next time